0: Well, we're continuing in our series through the book of Romans. Uh, we've titled this series, The Good News of, of God's Grace. And we've been looking at the, the wonderful news, uh, about God's grace and what God has done for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. We, we looked at the first half of the chapter last week. We'll finish the chapter, um, this week. On a Friday evening, I went with my family to see the new um, Spider-Man movie, um, Spider-Verse movie, Across the Spider-Verse. If you don't know it, uh, the main character in the film is a 15-year-old boy named Miles Morales, and he is Spider-Man, but his parents don't know it. And he, uh, he frequently, you know, he's late to school, he misses important family events uh, because he's off doing Spider-Man things. And his parents think he's just a a flaky teenager, that he's only concerned about himself. And I won't give away the the story, but there's an important scene in in the movie where um, Miles' father has gotten a a big promotion at work, and his mom throws a a celebration party, and there's lots of family and friends there, big event. Uh, But Miles is absent, and his dad gives a speech, and he, he talks about how he's worked so hard because he loves his family, and he wants to give uh, his son, Miles, opportunities. He wants to see his son, Miles, succeed. But Miles isn't there, and so it's, a, it's an embarrassment to his parents. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. And eventually, Miles shows up, and his parents are upset. They want to know what's going on, and so they, they start talking and, and Miles is wrestling with these big existential Spider-Man questions, you know, really wrestling with what it means for him to be Spider-Man. And, but he can't tell his parents that. You know, he can't reveal his identity. And so he's frustrated, and, and he says to his parents, this is my life. And his mom says something that is just uh, so insightful. Uh, she responds along the lines of, no, It's not just your life, it's my life, it's your dad's life, it's our life. In other words, Miles isn't just an individual. He, He is a part of a family, he's a part of a web of relationships, and his actions have repercussions for everyone he's connected to. He's not just an individual, and that idea... Is at the heart of our passage today. One person's actions can have repercussions for everyone they're connected to, in this case, the, the world. And last week, we saw that through Christ, Paul says, we've been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Each of us came into this world a, a sinner. Uh, rebelling against our Creator. There's, there's estrangement between us and our Creator, but Christ has accomplished reconciliation through His death on the cross. And, and Paul's saying everything is different now because of Christ, because of Him. Everything is different. And, and the question we're kind of left with after that, what he's, we looked at last week is, how can that be? How how does that work? How does one man's death have such earth-shaking repercussions for so many people? And, and Paul, to answer that in our passage, he kind of steps back and gives us uh, what you could say is the 30,000-foot view. So Paul gives us the, the big picture, the big story. He wants us to see how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection fits into the big story of God's rescue mission. And he shows us here in these verses that Jesus is the second Adam. The story of the world, if you wanted to boil it down, it's really the story of two men. Adam and Christ. The, the first Adam brought ruin and misery upon the world, and the second Adam came to undo the damage Paul's going to show us here in these verses how this works and and what it means for us. So I want to read the passage for us, Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Um, You can follow along. It's also printed in uh, the bulletin on page 9 or page 942 in in the Bible in the pews. This is God's Word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... the abundance of grace, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let me pray and and ask for his help as we come to his word. Our God and Father, as we look at this passage, which is dense, would you give us understanding? Would you help us to understand uh, the the predicament we're in as human beings and the, the rescue that you've accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I... As you can tell from the reading, this is a very theologically dense passage, perhaps the the densest passage in the book of Romans. And you can tell from the reading that that Paul's comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ and and the the effects of their actions on the world. And so we're going to have to put our thinking caps on for a bit today to make sense of this passage, but we're just going to look at two points. Um, Number one, Adam got us into a big mess. And two, Christ came to get us out of it. Adam got us into a big mess. Christ came to get us out of it. So let's think first about Adam. He he got us into a a big mess. And Paul starts off this section by focusing on Adam, the the very first human being, the the father of the human race. And uh, before we look at the details, here's what you need to understand about what Paul's doing. He's presenting Adam and Christ to us as two representatives. Two, uh, they're, they're heads of two different humanities. Adam is the head of the old humanity, humanity in, in bondage to sin and death. Christ is the head of a new humanity, a, a redeemed people, a, a people set free from sin and death. And the, the theological language for this is uh, federal head or covenantal head. What that means is that Adam and Christ as, as heads, as representatives, their actions, the action of each man affects everyone they're connected to. And so Paul tells Adam's story here in verse 12, really uh, three parts. Uh, part one, he says, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man. And, and Paul's alluding to that story we read just a few moments ago from Genesis 3. You you know the story well. God puts Adam in a, a beautiful garden, tells Adam, You can eat from any, you can eat any of the fruit from any of the trees that you like all except one. And God told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam did it anyway. And, and you know Eve's there too in the story, but Paul's focusing on Adam here. Adam did it. Anyway, had this command from God, Adam sins. Now some of you know the Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. That, that mentality goes all the way back to Adam in the garden. I did it my way. He rebelled against God's wise authority. He, he broke God's command and sin enters the world. And then step two in the story, death follows on sin's heels. Um, Paul says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Death is the the penalty for breaking God's commands. We didn't read it, but in chapter two, God told Adam, the day you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And death here uh, is both physical and spiritual death. Um, Spiritual death being estrangement from the God who is life. And so, Sin enters the world through Adam. Death uh, comes through sin. And then the final step in this, this downward spiral, Paul says, and so death spread to all men, meaning all people, because all sinned. Sin opens the door to death, and then death becomes a universal reality. That's the story Paul's narrating here. And this is part of what it means to be a human in the, in the present age. We're all caught up in the pain and loss of death. And it's not supposed to be this way. You, you know from Scripture, it's not supposed to be this way. God created us for life, not death. But Adam chose death when he rebelled, and now uh, that choice has had a ripple effect throughout all of humanity. Universal death is now our reality. And if you go on in Genesis to read uh, the following chapters in Genesis, for example, chapter 5, that, that long uh, genealogy, there's a, a refrain there. So-and-so lived X number of years, and he died. And we hear it again and again, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's the reality now in a, in a post-Eden world. Death, Paul says, spread to all people because all sinned. And that that phrase, because all sinned, is, is really crucial to understanding what Paul's getting at here in this comparison between Adam and Christ. This is where you're going to need to put your thinking caps on for a few moments. What does Paul mean by because all sinned? Uh, it, let me tell you what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean that everyone after Adam sinned and so they died too. I mean, that, that is true. Everyone after Adam is a sinner. He introduced corruption into the human family and everyone does sin and everyone did die. But, but that's not the point Paul's making here. His focus is uh, something a little different. He emphasizes throughout this passage the one man. The one man whose one sin has had disastrous consequences on the human race. I mean, verse 15, because of the one man's trespass, the many died. Verse 16, the one trespass resulted in judgment and condemnation for all. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, all are under death's reign. And then again, verse 19, by one man's disobedience, the many were counted as sinners. So Paul's saying here, look, the the cause of universal death, it's not simply personal sin. It goes deeper than that. It goes all the way back to Adam. Because Adam was our representative, the, the federal head of the human race, his sin was our sin. His guilt was our guilt. He acted on our behalf, and so what's true of him is true For us, all of Adam's family, all of us, received the penalty for Adam's sin. Now, this is a really hard thing, number one, to understand, number two, to accept. Um, But stay with me for a moment. Think of infants who die in infancy. Terrible thing, terrible thing. That newborn baby isn't capable of understanding God's commands, let alone breaking God's commands. And yet that child died. And it's not because of personal sin. There there was no personal sin. The child died because they're part of Adam's family. They share in the consequences of Adam's sin. And it's true for all of us. All of us belong to that Family of Adam. If you've read the, the Chronicles of Narnia series, the, the Narnians constantly refer to the, refer to the Pevensey children as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. It's this reality. We belong to Adam's family, and so we suffer the consequences of Adam's sin. And, and Paul draws this out in, in verses 13 and 14. Um, the argument it is a, a little complicated, but here's the gist of it uh, death is the penalty for breaking God's commands. God gave Adam an explicit command. Many centuries later, God gives Moses his law right at, at Mount Sinai. But in that long stretch of time between Adam and Moses, the, the people didn't have an explicit command from God the way Adam did. I mean, we saw earlier in Romans, uh, human beings have the law of God written on their hearts. But no direct command from God like Adam had or like the people after Moses had. Um, And Paul says, yes, sin was in the world, certainly. People committed sins. But their sinning was different than Adam's. Adam's sin was a transgression, a violation of a law. The people after him didn't have a command to break, and yet everyone received the same penalty as Adam. Paul says there in verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam. To Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like Adam's transgression, and we want to say, well, why? How, how could death reign over all these people? And the answer is because they were in Adam, in Adam. They belonged to Adam's family. This is the principle of corporate solidarity, uh, corporate solidarity. What's true of the representative is true of all those whom he represents. And and that just, you're probably sitting there thinking this, that, that seems unfair. I mean, how, how can that be? Why should I be held responsible for something that someone else did? Um, most of us here have been deeply shaped by American ideas about identity, Western ideas about identity, particularly Western individualism. That's just kind of the air we breathe. You know, we, we focus on the individual, and we think that we construct our own identity. We are self-made people. We, we figure out who we are. We make ourselves who we are um, independently from the group. And we succeed or fail by our own choices, our own abilities. Uh, the group's actions don't factor in. Um, you know, It's this idea that we're autonomous beings. And, and so this idea of corporate solidarity, it, it just doesn't sit right with us. It, it's not how we think about the world. Um, but you, you might know this. Uh, many other cultures around the world, they have no problem with this. They, they get it. Many Asian cultures, many African cultures, they, corporate solidarity is just a given. They understand that the actions of one have repercussions for the group, whether that's uh, the, the tribe, the clan, the extended family, maybe even the nation itself. Uh, John Donne, a poet from many centuries ago, said, no one is an island, no one's an island to himself. This idea of corporate solidarity, uh, Paul didn't make this up. I mean, you see this in other parts of Scripture. Uh, do you remember the story of David and Goliath? I mean, it's one of those first Bible stories that most of us learn really early on in being a Christian. David and Goliath. So Israel's at war with a neighboring nation, Philistia. And the armies from the two nations are, are gathered for a battle, But the war is not going to be decided by a big clash between the two armies. Each side sends a champion, a single champion, out to the battlefield. Uh, David goes as Israel's representative. Goliath goes as Philistia's representative. And you know how the story works out. Um, David is victorious. And his victory is not just his victory, David's victory is counted as Israel's victory. Goliath's defeat is counted as Philistia's defeat. This is the corporate solidarity, representative. And and like I said, you know, in our context, just swimming in, in individualism, we don't think like this. There are some exceptions though, right? I mean, we live in a representative democracy. Um, we get to elect people to represent us. Um, you know, for example, we send people to Congress and they act on our behalf. Um, they, they draft laws, they vote laws. Congress has the right to declare war against another nation and they can do it without consulting us personally. And, um, their actions, our representatives' actions affect us for good and for ill. And if Congress declares war against another nation, uh, this nation and its citizens are at war, whether we like it or not. The representatives' actions affect us. And so, you know, we get it when it comes to electing representatives, but still this idea that Adam represented us, I mean, it, it still feels unfair, doesn't it? It just doesn't seem Right, and, and let's just think for a moment, what's behind that sense of injustice, that uneasiness we feel with this, that, um, that Adam represented us and plunged us into ruin? Well, one, we didn't pick this representative, right? At least we have a say about who goes to Congress for us. We had no say about Adam. And, and what are we saying when we think like that? Basically, we're saying, you know, I would have picked better than God did. Maybe God didn't know what he was doing and he he sent that that fool out to represent us and and look what happened. (laughs) Not the case. Uh, Maybe we think we would have done a better job. You know, put me in the garden, give me a shot at it. I would have done differently than Adam. I mean, really? Really? I mean, the truth is, no one was better suited for the task than Adam. I mean, you, you think about it. He's created innocent, uh, created good. He wasn't corrupted by sin yet. He lived in uh, paradise, ideal circumstances, no bad examples to follow, and yet he failed. We wouldn't have done better. God gave us the right representative in Adam. Now, we don't like that he failed. But, but if you think about it, we have no problem when our representatives benefit us, do we? I mean, you think about um, a financial manager. You have a, a, someone managing your finances. They make good investment choices. You get a big return. You're more than happy to accept the profits, right? I don't, I don't think any of us would say, no, I can't accept that. I need to go earn that myself. Uh, we're happy to enjoy the results when they work to our favor, And what we need to see is, as difficult as it is for us to understand and accept that Adam was our representative and that his sin was our sin, his guilt is our guilt, this idea of God relating to us through a representative is actually very good news. It is really good news. If you've been with us in Romans, you've seen um, we have no defense for ourselves before God. We can't represent ourselves before God. No excuse, no defense. Our sins condemn us. We're condemned in our, in our uh, representative, Adam. But what if there was someone else to represent us? What if there was someone else who could be our federal head? Someone who, unlike Adam, is an obedient and righteous representative and his obedience and his righteousness could be counted as ours. And when we start thinking that way, Paul says, you're on the right track here. He says at the end of verse 14, there, there is someone like that. At the end of verse 14, he says that Adam was a type. He was a, a pattern or a preview of the one who was to come. He's speaking of Jesus there. Adam was a, a preview of Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam, the, the true and better Adam. So Adam got us into this big mess. And I, and I say it like that, and it sounds a little lighthearted, but you know it's a, it's a terrible disaster. Sin and death and hurt and heartache and pain and, and all that is wrong with this world. Adam got us into this Big mess. But Christ came to get us out of it. And so let's, let's think for a few moments about Christ, the second Adam. He came to get us out of this mess. You know, Adam, our first representative, failed. And we failed with him. But what Paul wants us to see is that Jesus succeeded. And and that's really what Paul is unpacking here. That's why he, he begins with Adam. He wants us to see that you really can't understand who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he accomplished if you don't understand Adam's role. Jesus comes as a new representative a new Adam, ahead of a new humanity to replace sin and death with grace and life. And, and throughout this passage, uh, especially verses 15 to the end, Paul compares and he contrasts Adam and Christ. And, and he looks at the comparisons uh, from three different angles. And let me just highlight three of them. Uh, one, the, the nature of their actions are completely different. The nature of Adam's action, the nature of Jesus' action, couldn't be more different. Look at how Paul describes what Adam did. It's like Paul has a, a thesaurus next to him on his desk and it's open to the word sin, sin and he just ransacks the thesaurus uh, for words related to sin. He, he talks about Adam's trespass uh, four times, crossing a boundary. He talked, he calls Adam's act a a sin, an act of wrongdoing. He he calls it in verse 19 disobedience. You see, Adam insisted, like Frank Sinatra says, Adam insisted on doing it his way, doing things his way. It was a, a grasp for power. But then you look at Jesus' actions, and Paul says they're they're entirely different. I mean, Paul says that what Jesus did was gift, free gift. Adam took but Jesus gave. He, he describes Jesus' work as an act of righteousness, as obedience. You think of Jesus, his life was one long obedience in the same direction, one, a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. Uh, Paul will say in Philippians 2 that Christ became obedient to the point of death on a cross. See, Jesus was marked by self-sacrifice. Self-giving, not, not self-assertion like Adam. The, the nature of their actions couldn't be more different. But second, the results of their actions couldn't be more different. Uh, as Paul talks about Adam and Christ, totally different outcomes. Uh, verse 15, death through Adam, but abundant grace and the gift of life. Through Jesus Christ. Um, Verse 16. Judgment and condemnation through Adam, but justification through Christ. Uh, Verse 17. Adam unleashes death's reign over humanity. Christ raises us up to reign in life with Him. It's almost like Paul's just saying point for point. Christ came to undo the mess that Adam created. But he actually... Christ actually does more than just clean up the mess. Uh, Third, Jesus' grace overwhelms Adam's disaster. The nature of their actions are different. The results of their actions are different. And the grace of Jesus Christ just overwhelms the disaster that Adam created. You see, trespass and grace, they're not equivalent. They're they're not the same. Uh, Christ's redemption is, is is greater than Adam's fall. His, His work is superior. He's not just another Adam. He's the true and better Adam. And you look again at verse 15. Paul says that many died in Adam, but the much more grace of Jesus Christ abounds to many. Uh, Verse 16, he says, uh, Judgment followed one trespass, Adam's transgression, and yet justification follows many trespasses. You know, the accumulated trespasses of all humanity. Now, we'd expect that more trespasses would be met with more judgment, right? And yet, Paul tells us God responds to an abundance of trespasses with superabounding grace. And now, Paul, you know, throughout the letter is, is interacting a bit with some of his Jewish readers. And one of his Jewish readers would wonder, well, okay, you, you've talked about Adam and you've talked about Jesus, but um, aren't we leaving out Moses? I mean, didn't, didn't God's law do something about the situation that um, Adam created? Didn't it help rectify the disaster? And you can see there in verse 20, Paul says, no, not at all in fact, it made things worse. He's going to say a lot about the law in chapter seven. We'll, we'll get there eventually. But the point is not that the law is bad, but the law shined a spotlight on sin. See, the law comes and defines sin as sin, shows it to be sinful, and it, in a sense, provokes sin. And you know, you, you see a sign maybe this has happened to you, you. You see a sign that says, "Wet paint, don't touch." And immediately, what do you want to do? You want to touch it. I mean, before you saw the sign, you had no thought of doing anything like that. You see the sign that tells you, don't do this thing, and now something inside me is like, I just want to do that thing. Uh, Something inside me doesn't like authority and wants to rebel against it. The, The law can't solve the problem. The law can only point out the problem. But Paul says there, Verse 20 and 21, But where sin increased, the law comes, shines a spotlight on sin, the trespass increases, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounds, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I think English translations just grasp at how to uh, translate what Paul's saying here about abounding grace, you know, he, he's saying that grace super abounds, that it just, it overflows. It's a, a fire hose of grace in the face of uh, the wickedness of our sin. I mean, imagine that you're in a car accident and it, it wasn't your fault, it was the other driver's fault, and, um, but your, your beat up Honda Accord is totaled. Can't drive it anymore. It was a it was a beater to begin with, and now it's it's done. And the other driver's insurance company, um, they don't simply give you a check that's equivalent to the, the value of your old beat up Honda Accord, which is what you know insurance companies would normally do. Instead, uh, they give you a brand new model uh, Tesla Model S with with all the bells and whistles. Um, that, that's a little bit of what Paul's trying to communicate here by superabounding grace. Grace that goes so far beyond our deserving, our need, what we could ever imagine. It's the idea of excessive grace. Lavish grace that just completely overwhelms our sin. You see, we gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. It's not just a a one-for-one that that Jesus kind of came and swept up the mess and got us back to a a fresh start like Adam in the garden. We've gained so much more than was ever lost in Adam. He got us into this, this big mess, dragged us down into ruin and misery, into bondage to sin and death. But Jesus came to get us out of the mess, and and so much more. Um, One commentator said, grace triumphs over evil by burying evil in an avalanche of grace. An avalanche of grace. So Adam got us into this mess. Christ came to get us out. And I want to just close with two applications. Um, First, the certainty... Of our salvation. You know, our solidarity with Adam and his sin and guilt. That it is a difficult truth to wrestle with. But there's a flip side to it: our solidarity with Jesus. In, in Adam, we were guilty and condemned, and, and hopelessly so. You know, there, there's nothing you and I could do to get ourselves out of Adam. And we couldn't go back and rewrite history. We, he failed. We failed in him, but in Christ. The, the true Adam who succeeded, we have justification in life, and it, it's entirely his doing. And Paul, he emphasizes here by the one man's disobedience, we were counted reckoned as sinners, but by the one man's obedience, we are counted as righteous. And, you know, we've, as we've walked through Romans, we've seen that we're justified by faith. We're justified by faith, meaning faith is the, the means by which we receive that verdict from God. But but the verdict in justification, God declaring us to be righteous in His sight, that verdict is not based on our faith. It's based on Jesus' obedience and His obedience alone, not ours. By one man's obedience, the many are counted righteous. His, you know, his active obedience throughout his life. I always do the things that please my Father. His, his flawless, lifelong obedience to God and his passive obedience, giving himself to death on a cross, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. He obeyed. And he didn't do it for himself. He obeyed for us as our representative, as our head. His obedience perfect obedience is counted as ours his righteousness counted as ours now we know as christian people salvation is a gift of grace but but how often do we fall back into thinking well it's up to me to make this all work out you know am i doing enough am i involved at church enough am i am i growing enough um, how's my prayer life am i reading my bible Um, enough. Um, Romans, you know, we can become so fixated on what I do, my doing, my obedience. And Romans 5 says, look, it's all about Jesus doing, not yours. It's about his obedience, not yours. It's about his righteousness, not yours. And and maybe that sounds a little too loosey-goosey to you. You know, if we just tell people Jesus obeyed for you, um, his His righteousness is yours. if my salvation's all about him and his grace, um, I guess it doesn't matter if I go on sinning. and Paul says, well I've got you in the trap that I wanted to get you in and I'm going to talk about that in chapter six but but for now, just rest in that reality of Jesus perfect obedience. Just just rest in this truth that that your life, your salvation, your eternity rest on him, his life of perfect obedience. Know that that God welcomes you. He accepts you. He's pleased with you because you are in Christ, no longer in Adam. The certainty of our salvation. Second application for those of you who haven't professed faith in Christ. You know, Each of us comes into this world in Adam. It's it's the default. We had no choice in it. We're we're born into this family, caught up in the consequences of of his disobedience, and then we add our own disobedience and sin on top of that. The, The question is, how can you move from being in Adam to being in Christ? And it's not, you know, your parents can't do it for you. Um, it's not about being born in a particular place or to a particular family. You you move from Adam to Christ by receiving the gift. Paul talks here, you know, again and again, the free gift of grace. You you move from Adam to Christ by receiving that gift. That's the the language of faith, putting your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know, saying God, I, I'm a sinner. And and I've messed up. I'm caught up in Adam's mess. Um, It's my mess too. But I want to belong to Jesus. I want to be in Christ. Forgive me. Receive me. Welcome me into the family because of Him. And and I want to say to you, look, you were born in Adam, but you don't have to stay in Adam. Trust in Jesus. Receive His grace. Become part of the new family. Receive the gift. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, sometimes your word stretches our thinking, challenges our our assumptions. Uh, We pray that you would give us understanding of this passage, but most importantly, that You would help us live in the grace of Jesus Christ, that You would help us live in the, the freedom of the grace that we've received through Him, Your righteous declaration. Would You just assure us, Father, that, that our life, that everything we are, everything we have, our whole eternity rests on the obedience of that one man, the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.